You know, um, Hollywood loves an origin story. Do you guys know what I mean by that, origin stories? Um, uh, an origin story is a story of how a villain or a hero became the person we know them to be. It's the prequel, the story before the story that we're familiar with. If you Google um, origin story movies, you might end up with a list like this. At least that's what I ended up with. Um, you get a, a number of ones you might be hard to see, but uh, movies like uh, Puss in Boots, which uh, because who needed an origin story more than an obscure fairy tale character in a movie about an ogre, but uh, it's actually pretty fun. Uh, or Cruella from Disney's 100 Dalmatians. Uh, I haven't seen that one, but there's a variety of origin origin stories here. If you Google top origin story movies, you'll get movies like Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which I did enjoy that one, uh, Casino, uh, Casino Royale, the origin of uh, Bond, uh, Godfather Part Two, which tells an origin story of sorts, and Batman Begins, of course, which is a pretty popular origin story. Um, origin stories are a particular kind of story, and they have a simple goal. They, they, they have a, to move a character from someone like you and me, just someone relatable, to, to, to someone who is very distinct. It's, in origin stories, we want to know, we know who the character is going to become. We know, okay, this guy's going to become Batman. So the story is like how this person becomes Batman. We know who Cruella DeVille is from the 101 Dalmatians. We want to know how she becomes like that. The same with James Bond. We know who James Bond becomes like. We want to see what happened in his life to make it. That's an origin story. We want to see how the character becomes that person. This is a uh, genre in storytelling. It follows a particular form and pattern and it has certain elements that you come to expect. This is how we tell stories, whether they're historic stories or fictional. We tend to tell certain stories certain ways. This is certainly true for the Bible. Parables. These are fictional stories designed to teach a moral lesson, and they're told in a certain kind of way. You're, you know what to expect a little bit in a parable when you start studying the Gospels or these stories of Jesus' life. They were a particular kind of storytelling. They were a particular kind of telling of a biography. They weren't just a typical biography. They were, there was a genre of what became the Gospels. And when you tell stories in the Gospels about miracles, you'll realize that miracles, the miracle stories, are a particular kind of story. And the same is true for the Christmas story. The Christmas story, which is, uh, you know, Jesus' origin story of sorts, was written in the style and the themes of similar origin stories of his time, or of the people of Israel, of what some scholars refer to as birth narratives, what we call a nativity, which comes from a French word meaning the circumstances surrounding a birth. I almost felt like I should say it in a French accent, but I wasn't going <laughs> to even try. But it's, it's a particular kind of story about the events surrounding someone's birth, usually, at least in this biblical genre, of somebody who's important to God or to the people of God. So the Christmas story is a birth narrative. It actually has two birth narratives, if you remember. Do you remember the two birth narratives? One, of course, is Jesus. The other one is the birth narrative of John the Baptist, which is included in the Christmas story. And it's told, and it follows a pattern very similar to Old Testament or Hebrew 
birth narratives, birth narratives that we find in, in the Old Testament. These include stories that you might be familiar with. The story of how Abraham and Sarah had a child in their old age. The story of Moses. Do you remember Moses? Moses has a birth narrative. We learn the story of how Moses was born in a season of great violence when all of these other children were being... <sighs> Next week, we'll talk about Moses' story and the violence against children, and we'll actually get to hear, hopefully, from a guest from Mothers of Murdered Children, so it'll be very appropriate week. This also includes stories of Samson. He has a nice birth narrative, or Samuel, uh, and how Samuel was born. But each of these stories are similar. They, they, they follow a very similar form, which also is the Christmas story. It follows that same form. It follows that same rhythm. So for the Hebrew people, these stories would have been, well, some of them memorized, many of them told multiple times uh, throughout the year. And people would have been familiar with these stories, which means both the authors of the Christmas story, of the, of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, and the original audience that they were writing for, which was, at, for a couple of the books, majority Jewish audience, the Christmas story would have been familiar, the kind of story it was. One might say that, they, they, in fact, they're, they're so similar that one might say that you can't really understand the Christmas story without really being familiar with these other stories because they were based on them. They were told in a similar way. A similar form. It'd be like this. It'd be like reading Lord of the Rings. Any fans of Lord of the Rings out there? All right, got a few of you here. Without knowing that Tolkien, who was, of course, the author of Lord of the Rings, was a scholar who taught about Beowulf, Beowulf right? And, and was clearly influenced by Beowulf. Or knowing that Tolkien was a big fan of George MacDonald. So if you love Tolkien and you haven't read George MacDonald, you don't understand where Tolkien was coming from. And so this is a, like, the, oh, wow, I have another story I can read that's similar that kind of came before Tolkien stories that influenced Tolkien stories. That's how we approach these Hebrew nativities. So during Advent, we're going to look at these other nativity stories, these Old Testament Hebrew nativity stories, and see what they can show us and how they can shed light on the Christmas story that we're here to celebrate. So and today, instead of looking at just one birth narrative, I want to look at a couple, which has uh, <clears throat> gotten myself into a lot of trouble with this. So we probably will go over today. But uh, to do that, I need to share with you sort of the overarching story of this particular family, which covers about half of the book of Genesis. And yes, summarizing half of Genesis is not something you should try to do in a sermon, so let's go ahead and do that. Um, it's a lot, and I'm going to do it very quickly. Um, and, and to help us stay with you, I'm going to show you their family tree. But before I do, I want to name a couple of things. This story, which is the story of how the people of Israel came to be, has a lot of drama. A lot of drama. A lot of difficult stories, especially for our modern sensibilities. These uh, story is written in, with ancient sensibilities, stories that include uh, things like slaves, uh, multiple wives, and other questionable institutions. Um, it's extremely patriarchal, so much so that, it, that literally it's about Israel's patriarchs. Um, a couple of thoughts on this. I want to just name that just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean it's a good thing, right? In fact, that's what's so great about the Bible is it tells a lot of stories 
very honest, brutal stories that are clearly not good things, but they're included anyways, regardless of how it makes the people of God look. Um, because I think God is more concerned with hypocrisy than, than almost anything else. But just because the Bible doesn't mean it's a good thing or that it's what God wanted. The Bible tells us often what people did and what people believed, not necessarily what we should do and what we should believe. Because it's just it's sharing the story of God's people and how they get to know God. And, and the second thing I want to share is just because some of this might feel horrible to us, sometimes that's not the point of the story. For the people who wrote it and for the people who were reading it originally, it might not have felt as horrible, right? Because we live in a different time. Um, it doesn't make it right. Uh, it just means that that might not have been something that they noticed um, and probably wasn't then the point of the story. And if you dwell on that, you'll miss the point. They're writing it for a point, and you'll miss it if you dwell on some of the stuff that, that really bothers us. So finally, I want to say is that most infant nativities in, uh, uh, include stories of women struggling to get pregnant. And, and of course, I just need to say that I have no idea what that feels like. Obviously, I'm a guy, and I just want to name that up front. But I know from people who are close to me that struggling to get pregnant can be very difficult, and that there is still, even today, shame associated with that. Not as much as the past, but it's still very real. And I do know that it can be a trigger for some, so just know that I'm going to try to handle this as sensitively as I can. Still, as hard as it can be today and in the, in the little bit of shame that is attached uh, today if, if you struggle to get pregnant or you want to get pregnant and the feelings that are associated with that, which, once again, I, I can't speak to, um, what I do know is that it was 100 times worse thousands of years ago when these stories were told, um, when society put in an even more immense amount of pressure on women to give birth. An entire role of women was wrapped up in having kids even more so back then. And so if you couldn't have kids, you really would feel worthless. Um, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I believe uh, that each of you are more than your ability to give birth and that you have gifts and talents to bring to the world regardless of whether you have children. But in some cultures, especially ancient cultures, women's entire value is held up with this. So much so that having a kid, and this is an important part of understanding some of these really messed up stories in the Old Testament. Having a kid, no matter how it came about, would be celebrated, uh, usually. Even if it came out of kind of a difficult, dramatic, or abusive situation, the expectation to have kids was so great that many people would have kids no matter the cost. Um, and there's some very intense stories, and one of which we'll look at today, that exhibit this. It doesn't make it right, once again, and just because it happened in the Bible doesn't mean it's how we should live, but it's how people lived. So with that in mind, let's look at this family tree. The family tree of the people of Israel starts with Abraham. Remember the song? Did you learn the song, Abraham? Man, I've been, I, I didn't look it up, and I could not remember the song, so thank you. Yeah, many sons had Father Abraham, and you got your hands and your feet moving and stuff. We're going to, it sounds like a really innocent song, doesn't it, Father Abraham and many sons? It is not an innocent story. So Abraham, here's the people, he's chosen by God to be the parent of God's people of Israel. God had been trying to work. Now, at this point, God was working with the entire world. But after the 11th chapter of Genesis, we see God's strategy change. God enters into a relationship with Abraham, soon to become this family. 
and he was going to now change the world through this family. That's, that's, that's God's plan. They would be agents of God in the world. And Abraham is married to Sarah. But Abraham and Sarah are old. And uh, his wife was not able to get pregnant um, up to this point. And, and they're trying. Now, God had promised them at this point, God had promised them that they would have a child. That child would go on until he was the father of a great nation, and that would eventually change the world. They would be agents of God's mission on earth, but Sarah isn't getting pregnant, and she's getting very old. So she suggests to Abraham, how about this, Abraham? Why don't you sleep with my slave girl, and she will have a child for you? And we're introduced to Hagar. So Abraham says, sure, uh, he does sleep with her, and then Sarah uh, and Hagar becomes pregnant, and Sarah and Hagar have a falling out, tensions rise, as you could imagine. It's very it's kind of an ancient soap opera of sorts, and uh, Hagar, after being mistreated by Sarah, runs away while pregnant with her and Abraham's child. Ultimately, Hagar and Sarah have children. She has a child named Ishmael. This is the name given to her by God to name her child. Um, and then Sarah, she finally gets pregnant and gives birth to Isaac. And it's Isaac who's going to carry on Abraham's line. Now, before going down that line, we do want to let you know that Sarah eventually passes away, and uh, Abraham sort of remarries, slash has a concubine named Keturah. And she has Midian, and then tradition suggests five additional children. So this is, this is Abraham's family. Um, just a regular old modern family. Back to Isaac. Isaac meets Rebecca. He marries Rebecca. She gets pregnant, and she has twins. How exciting. Except for they don't like each other. Esau and Jacob uh, wrestle in the womb, and they wrestle outside of the womb, and they wrestle as adults, and one tricks the other. Um, they don't get along. But ultimately, even though Esau was the firstborn, Jacob gets to carry Abraham's life, and this is where things get really interesting. And by interesting, I mean super messy. Jacob ends up falling for a girl named Rachel. Maybe you know the story. And he agrees to work for Rachel's dad seven years so that he can marry Rachel. And then they have the wedding planned seven years after working for her dad. And on the wedding night, her dad switches the brides, which is either a soap opera or a Hallmark Christmas movie. I'm not sure. So he marries Leah. Jacob marries Leah. And Leah has a bunch of kids for Jacob. But Jacob is still in love with Rachel. So he works seven more years and finally marries Rachel. And uh, which I'm sure didn't cause any problems with Leah. And they're sisters, by the way. It's messy, right? Well, to make things worse, Rachel now can't get pregnant. Once again, this is a big deal. Uh, so she does what her grandmother did. But this time, somehow she makes it work. There's not a falling out. She gives her husband, Jacob, her servant, Bilfa. And Bilfa provides Jacob with two sons, Dan and Nephali. But Leah... She's watching, and she's like, oh, okay, this is how we're doing it, all right? 
She has grown old now and no longer is having children. So she says, hey, Jacob, you should have my slave woman, Zilpha. And Jacob has two children with Zilpha, Gad and Asher. All right, this is very complicated. Well, um, finally, Rachel is able to have children. Yay for Rachel. And I'm really glad because one of them is Joseph, who I'm named after. Woohoo. And, uh, but also Benjamin. And then if you know the story of Joseph, Joseph goes on and he ends up in Egypt, which is a light way of putting it. And he meets a nice Egyptian woman and they have two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim. All right. So this is the story of how the people of Israel become the people of Israel. The ones in yellow are significant because those are the ones that become the 12 tribes of Israel. Which, honestly, until I laid this out like this, I didn't quite realize that they were from four different women, the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, this is, if you look at the map of Israel during the time of the kingdom years, the 12 tribes of Israel match up with the map. Now, Joseph is black because because of his role in saving his family, both of his kids got a piece of land. So that's, his is split between two kids. And then Levi doesn't get any because he is a priest. If you're familiar with the priesthood, they didn't get land. They were meant to be cared for by the people. So wink, wink, nudge, nudge. If you haven't given, I'm just kidding. And so this is the family tree is actually Israel's origin story. It's a messy one, but, but I, I actually like that about it. It's very honest. They didn't make it look better than it was. Um, and, and I love how it is. But in this family tree, in this family tree right here, there are lots of births, but we're given three birth narratives, three stories where God shows up and talks to the parents about having a child. They are the story of Hagar and Ishmael, Sarah and Isaac, and Rachel and her twins, Jacob and Esau. And each of these stories are actually really similar in a lot of ways to the story of Christmas. In these stories, the parents are visited by God, often by angels or God, um, similar to the story of Mary and Joseph. And the interactions with God or the messengers from God are similar to the way God speaks to Mary and Joseph. They're following a very similar form. And just like when God tells Mary and Joseph what they should name their child, God tells the same for Hagar and Abraham and even eventually Jacob. So I want to look at that briefly. Consider Hagar. Hagar receives a vision from God. Very similar to Abraham, very similar to Mary and Joseph, the Christmas story. The angels show up and say, you're going to give birth to a child. If you remember, uh, Hagar was forced to sleep with Abraham as a way for Abraham to have a child when Sarah couldn't, um, which is just an absolutely terrible situation. So terrible, in fact, that the Handmaid's book and movies are based off of these stories, by the way. If you've watched those, they're based off some of these stories, specifically um, uh, Jacob's, uh, Billa and Silpha. Um, but right after that, she gets pregnant, and her and Sarah don't get along because Hagar knows that Sarah is going to take her child and raise it as her own. And you can just imagine how horrible that would be. Uh, so um, Hagar runs away from Abraham and Sarah. And you kind of have to cheer for her, you know, like, good for you. Get out of there. That's like, that's such a difficult situation to be in. Um, And, you know, don't give up your child, like, if you're really reading it. Um, But after she runs away 
and she's in hiding. God visits her. And here's what God says in Genesis 16, 11. The angel of the Lord also said to her, this is rare. I do have this. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you shall name him Emmanuel. I mean, no, it's a different story, but you shall name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your misery. This language is very similar to the way the angels speak to Joseph and Mary. The, the name that one of the names that they're given for Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. But here she's told to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. He says, name your child Ishmael to know that you, even you, a slave used and abused, isn't ignored by God. God hasn't abandoned you. We're given this birth narrative, which is phenomenal, not necessarily because Hagar would give birth to a great ruler in Israel or even someone who would go on to carry Abraham's line. We're given the story, the first birth narrative, by the way, in the Bible, to show us that even at the beginning of the people of Israel, while the people of Israel being formed, God loved and cared for and heard the cries of everyone, even this little slave girl. God knew her, God loved her, God had not abandoned her. In fact, God promises that she'll give birth to a great nation similar to Abraham. God gives her a similar promise as God had given Abraham. That even those in the world that the world tells us to discard aren't discarded by God. They can even have a Christmas story. And then there's this great twist of events. Hagar... She's bold. I like Hagar. She names God. And here's the thing you don't know. No one's named God at this point. This is Genesis. God didn't want to be named. Here's why. When God was named, in the world at this time, everyone believed in different kinds of gods. And so you'd have God of the harvest and God of the sun and God of the whatever. And so by naming a God, you're naming them to a particular thing. And so God of Israel is like, no, I'm not named. I'm not limited by any of those things. I'm not just the God of the harvest and just the God of the sun. I'm God of everything. So don't give me a name. But Hagar gives her a name and God accepts it. It's the first time anyone names God. And then they go on to give him all kinds of great names. Um, but here's how Hagar names God. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, El Roya, which means, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. Whew. Imagine seeing the one who sees you. She says, you have seen me. God sees her, God hears her, but more than that, because that's always true, God always sees you and God always hears you, she felt seen by God. She realized God had seen her. And gosh, is there a better feeling in the world than to be seen? It's interesting if you compare this to the name given Isaac. Do you know what uh, Isaac name means? Some of you might know. It, uh, it means the one who laughs, which is um, not nearly as theological, but interesting. You see both Sarah and Abraham laughed at God when God said you were going to have a child in your old age. So um, God told them, you know, uh, you know, 
God told him, name your child the one who laughs as if to say, the joke's on you. (laughs) You know, like, I did what I said I was going to do that you thought was funny. You had a child, and now you're going to name him the one who laughs. Um, God actually doesn't tell Rachel what to name her children, so she comes up with her own names. Uh, Jacob means uh, something, but it doesn't stick. God actually shows up and encounters uh, Jacob on his own and gives him a new name. You can see that in Genesis 33, 28. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Israel most likely means the one who struggles with God. He gets this name, by the way, right after a wrestling match with God, so it makes sense. And for some, I would say this is a great description of our spiritual life, don't you think? We are the people who struggle with God. In the end, Jacob's God-given name becomes the name of God's people, and they become the people of Israel or those who wrestle with God. So, okay. You still with me? Let's jump to the Christmas story. (laughs) Jesse. More or less. <laughs> He's like, I zoned out a little bit ago. Um, let's look at the family tree. All right. You see how it compares and differs from the previous one. This story, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, starts with a young woman named Mary. And that's the first difference, isn't it? The fact that it starts with her and not him, worth noticing. Mary becomes pregnant before she's even married, and if there was anything worse than not having kids, it was having kids before you were supposed to. A lot of rules around this. So her fiancé, Joseph, finds out, and uh, um, so now you've got Joseph, and things are going, uh, he's going to end things, but then he's visited by an angel who tells him this. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. He says, Joseph, you're going to be a dad, but you won't be the father. So this story starts out with God telling the potential patriarch that it's not going to involve him directly, that he's taking a back seat and will have to play a more supportive role. It won't really be about Mary either. It's ultimately going to be about Jesus, but she's going to get a far more starring role. Joseph kind of exits the story after the Christmas story. So she, like Hagar and a few others, meets God directly. She hears from God. She's chosen by God. You could argue that she was chosen by God more than Joseph. Joseph was simply asked to support her calling. And knowing these other stories, we're supposed to notice this. Already this kingdom, this new kingdom, is turning things upside down. So the angel visits Mary and says this. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will have to call him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. Mary's going to have a child, and she's going to name him Jesus. And so the family tree now looks like this already a lot messy, a lot less messy than Abraham's. And she's to name him Jesus, which means God saves. God was coming to save the people. He had heard their cries. He saw their suffering. He was sending someone to deliver them and us from pain and hurt and injustice. And, and, and God would do this in this new kind of kingdom he was building. God didn't just use Jesus to build a kingdom rooted in having children and, you know, growing this great nation. He would do it differently. He gathered 12 men. And it's, of course, specifically 12 men for a reason. We're supposed to think of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And now he obviously walked, also called a lot of women to serve with him, but he chose specifically 12 men for that reason of, of, of recreating Israel's origin story. This would be Israel, but in a different sort of way. And these men would go on to lead the church, but they were a group of men from all walks of life. Some were actually brothers, but most of them were unrelated. And they would become a new kind of family and build a new kind of kingdom, one that wasn't built on inheritance and fathers passing it to their sons, etc. It's why, in fact, when Jesus meets this Jewish leader, Nicodemus, he sits down with Nicodemus and he has a conversation about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And he says, the only way you can really be a part of the kingdom of God is if you are, anyone remember? Born again. Boy, that, that word means something in our culture, doesn't it? Born again. In, in the biblical story, it meant you have to enter into a new family. You have to, you get a fresh start. You, you're you get a birth narrative, a new kind of birth narrative in this new kind of family. And so you get born again into this family, into this kingdom that God is forming. And he says it, you know, this is Jesus came to deliver his people. And this is the point of the kingdom. And, and, but this is what it means. Jesus made it clear. He's, he, he gets in front of the people uh, in a synagogue and he tells them, this is what it means for me to save you. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus came to save, which means a lot more than getting a ticket to heaven. It means to deliver people from bondage, to give sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to release prisoners, to give good news to the poor. In fact, consider Abraham's uh, family tree. I like to imagine that all of them got together for a family reunion. Can you imagine that? They're all hanging out. It's Christmas time. <laughs> Family's back together for Thanksgiving. Let's imagine, though, that Jesus showed up to this family reunion. Who do you think Jesus would be spending his time with? You know who I think Jesus would hang out with based on what we know about Jesus and the gospel stories? Hagar, Bilpha, and Zilpha. He might have hung out with them individually, or most likely they were all hanging out together. And then soon enough, Jesus would get this reputation for being a friend of slave women, sinners. But that's who Jesus is. The, the Christmas story isn't just about how God came into this world. It's, it's about how God wanted to build a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of family. Jesus was born to build a community for people like Hagar, people who have been rejected, who are scared, hurt, alone. Jesus sees her and hears her, and Jesus came to build a family that someone like her could belong to, where, where, where she would be loved and safe and no longer used or abused. That's why Hagar and Ishmael are given a birth narrative, the first of the birth narratives, and why Jesus is given a birth narrative like Ishmael. He came to love and deliver people like them, people considered second-class citizens, and anyone else looking for a new kind of family. In other words, the Christmas story isn't just about God being born. It's about how through God, we might be born again and given a second chance at life, no matter who we are. Families can be tough. I just got back from hanging out with mine. I'm telling you, they could be tough. 
There could be disagreements and challenges, and, 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 but there's such a, a need to belong to a family. And if, especially for those who kind of have no family left, family can be especially tough. That's why it's so important that the church is here. Because we're meant to be a new kind of family. That regardless of who your parents are, what kind of life you were born into or not born into, whether you had access to resources or education or opportunities, whoever you are, you can belong here in the people of God. You can be born again into a new kind of family. And we can have our own Christmas story, so to speak, our own nativity where God shows up and makes it clear to each one of you that you get a new chance in life.